0: Okay, welcome back to Nerd is a New Cool. I'm Josh.
1: I'm Justin. And I'm John.
0: Okay, guys, big news, and Justin, I don't want to set off any like PTSD for you or anything, but did you guys see what the mountain from Game of Thrones did yesterday?
1: I heard about I didn't watch it, but I heard that he was gonna be on T V did he deadlift like he set the deadlift world
0: record at one thousand one hundred and four pounds. God, that's a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's, he's he's, uh, he's a large man. And Things Sandor like
0: Clegane beat him.
2: Have you seen his girlfriend? So, or Her wife no. or fiance? <laughs> She's like the teeniest little thing.
0: Interesting.
2: Yeah. I bet he could deadlift, it sounds like 10 of her, about. Yeah. Maybe nine. But either way, lots of her. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I yeah. thought that
0: was a little fun fact well, that oh, Justin still...
2: I think that's, that's an, a great yeah. fact. What what I find is interesting is that you show, You even said – oh, those dogs. It's okay. You even said – those are Lambert's dogs, by the way, that are get very excited when anything happens in the world, right? He's on mute, so yes. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> don't walk
1: in front of my house if you don't want dogs to bark at you.
2: Yeah. So I was going to say in the last episode, Josh, you even commented – you don't didn't watch Lost because of what you heard about the ending. Mm-hmm. Do you find the irony? Do you see the irony in that with Game of Thrones?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, but I started Game of Thrones before. Right. Like, so I didn't know the ending wasn't going to be very satisfying. Right. Okay. So like now it'd be like if somebody told me about Dexter, the ending sucked. I, yeah. I might struggle to watch that, but nobody told me how bad the ending was. So...
2: That's true. And now with Dexter, I would be willing to rewatch that series again. I'm pretty, I'm still, I'm still not willing to rewatch Game of Thrones. I'm sorry. I'm I'm very, I'm very bitter. I've thought about it actually. Uh,
1: And I haven't started, but I was like, yeah, one of the, like, basically one of these days I'm going to have to rewatch that, but I have no idea when, but it'll happen. But ending a series in general is difficult.
2: Hmm. I have so many thoughts. We've already t- we've talked about this before, so we're going to let's just let's just move on. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> that is true. You're right. It is hard to end a series and please everybody. No, you can't.
1: Yeah. Anyways, uh, let's get into what we just nerded out on. Justin,
2: what have yeah, you been doing? So, I just nerded out on a show called The Great British Baking Show. And if you don't know about The Great British Baking Show, I Feel sympathy for you because it is a fantastic, fantastic show. And here's what's so great about it. So you know, you see all these other shows like uh, Iron, not even Iron, Chef, Iron uh, Chef, Hell's Kitchen, right? Hell's Kitchen is Gordon Ramsay just yelling at people, and the Hell's Kitchen Junior is Gordon Gordon Ramsay being very nice to children in the same scenario. I've heard that. Oh, it's so good! So, the reason why Great British Baking Show is so amazing—it's all these bakers, but they're all British, and everyone's nice to each other, and it's just so—it's just so uplifting to watch these people fail at ba- a baking competition, but and everybody being okay with it. They're just so like, lovely. Oh, you did your best. They're just so lovely to each other, and it's just fantastic. I just—I love it. I get so happy watching it. And anyway, so the show debuted on the BBC season one, August 17th, 2010. And season 10 came out last August, uh, August 27th in 2019. And uh, again, it, it airs on it and Netflix. And it may even be considered a Netflix original now. It's Somehow Netflix is able to do that. But it, orig- it originated in, in Britain on the BBC. And it's directed by Andy Devonshire, who also directed The Apprentice, the U.K. version. The U.K. version, let's be clear. That's not the U.S. version. That's a really important distinction now. (laughs) Yeah, it is. uh, So it actually stars four people, and two of them are hosts and two of them are judges. So up first, we've got our two hosts. So our hosts are Noel or Noel. Noel? Noel? It's definitely Noel. Uh Noel Fielding, and he's he's an actor and comedian. And I actually, i have seen him on this show or this skit called Old Greg. So Google Old Greg sometime. It's the creepiest weird thing you've ever seen in your life. But this is one of the one of the hosts. Another one is Sandy Toxvig, who's a British-danish actor, comedian, and writer, as well as producer and activist. And finally, the judges. We've got Paul Hollywood who is just a big guy in, in British, um, I don't know, the British baking scene. <laughs> his, his dad's got a bakery that he started off as a teenager. And he basically is this giant baker in hotels around Britain and internationally. <laughs> and then finally uh, they actually had a, had a switch in judges. I think it was around season seven, maybe. Uh, went from this person called Mary Berry. That's what her nickname was dubbed by Paul Hollywood to a pers- person called I know right weird uh, British people. To now we got Prue, who is an expert on gastro uh, gastronomy, gastronomy. 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 I know I couldn't say that word. I was trying to add an additional anatomy in there. Gastronomy. Gastronomy, and uh, is also one of the like just country's foremost authorities on all things culinary. And she's a big time cook, chef, broadcaster, writer etc etc so check it out it's a great uplifting show and you learn some things like I learned Lambert this is where I learned uh, the, the artwork on top of baked goods is called lattice work lattice lattice work because of this lattice show lattice work so where do you get got, cultured I, I learned I learned a lot in this show um, <laughs> I learned about like how you need things to well, you need things to prove like the proving drawer so that, you know, so, so things can like, you know,
1: grow. Yeah. You have to, you have to prove dough. It's just, you just got to let it sit there for a little bit.
2: Well, I didn't know before that before you
1: actually to... stick it in the oven.
2: I had no idea until watching the show. That was the thing. Mm-hmm. So learn something new every day. What, what, what have you been or not on?
1: So I, I couldn't tell you why, but for some reason, entourage, Rewatching Entourage for the I don't know third or fourth time was uh was something that we just did. <clears throat> and I started it and then we actually started over because Megan started getting into it and we watched the complete series and the movie in the span of two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, about two weeks. That's crazy. Uh, it, it's a, fa- I mean, it's, it's 30 minutes. It's fast. So like, it doesn't take long to, to burn through episodes, but it's still pretty impressive that we were able to do that in two weeks. Um, so for those of I, you
2: that, yeah, go ahead. I, had you, had you watched it before? Yeah. Okay. So you're, this is a rewatch. I'm sorry. I must've missed that. Um, yeah. Rewatch. This is okay. probably the third time I've gone through it at least. So, ca- so I'm wondering, cause I've heard people say this. Did, is it still good? Like, it, it, does it, does it hold up? I thought so. Okay.
1: Um I mean some of it can't like some and it was actually kind of nice because Megan kind of pointed out a few things where you know some people just kinda get old. Like drama starts just to get kind of old after a while. Mm-hmm. Like his character doesn't really ever evolve. Like Vince kind of evolves, he evolves, Turtle evolves. But drama just is kind of the same thing. Yeah. So <clears throat> for those of you that don't know, Entourage is the is a show around a film star, Vincent Chase, as he navigates the vapid terrain of Los Angeles with a close circle of friends, his entourage, and his agent. It's a TV series that that was on HBO, uh, debuted on July 18, 2004, and the final episode of the Ace season was on September 11, 2011. And the movie came out on May 25, 2015. Uh, everything was done by Doug Allen. Doug Allen created the TV show and he wrote, directed, and produced the movie. It stars Kevin Connolly as Eric Murphy, uh, who is essentially Vince's manager, Adrian Grenier as Vincent Chase, the movie star, Kevin Dillon as Johnny Chase, his half brother, aka Johnny Drama, Jerry Ferreira as Turtle, Jeremy Piven as his agent, Ari Gold. Rex Lee as, for most of the show, Ari's assistant, Lloyd. And then Perry Reeves as Mrs. Ari, who you actually don't find out what her name is until the until one of the last episodes.
2: Hmm. And her name is Melissa. So she's from, I know her from... She was... Uh, well, was she uh, hold on, hold on. I got it. Old school. Old school. She's, yeah. she's um, Will Frank Ferrell's the tank's ex. Wife. Yeah. Frank the Tank's wife or ex-wife at the end, right? hmm <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, in the show,
1: it's it, it's not going to win any awards. It was just one of those shows that's entertaining. It's got a ton of celebrity um, appearances in it. I've heard rumors that it's loosely based on Mark Wahlberg's career and his life. And you actually see them in the first episode where you have Mark and his three friends pass by Vince and his three friends in the very first episode. But it's a fun show. It's entertaining. Um the ending feels kind of rushed, but whatever. The movie was so-so, but if you're looking for something that's you know, entertaining and
2: funny and, yeah. Check it out. I enjoyed it. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you, and it's, I mean, it's definitely worth watching. That's why I was curious if it holds up, because I'd like to watch it again, because I don't think Jan has seen all of it, maybe part of it. So. I thought it did. I
1: mean, and the only thing, like, the technology that they use is the only thing that, that's, that's glaring, but um i don't know i was still entertained by it and still kind of looking forward to certain episodes
2: yeah well good check it out entourage so you may have noticed at a certain point josh just stopped talking to us um and the reason why is that he lost all internet access pretty much after we started this episode so we are going to forge ahead though (laughs) And so he yes. may pop back in at some point, but we you know obviously we're on very tight schedules because we're super busy during this time. Right. We've got a lot going on. I got mean, have got a lot, got a
1: lot of stuff to do around the house as I, soon as we're done with this.
2: I think the biggest part about it is we really want to talk. I really want to talk about the legends of rock. And so we're just going to do it right now. Yeah. Um, so welcome. <laughs> and hopefully you enjoy a little bit of nerd and full nerd of the legends of rock. So first of all, it's really important as we're doing this. We gotta we gotta give the definition of rock and roll, right? Absolutely. And this this is according to you know various sites on the interwebs, um, and there's a lot of dispute where it comes from. But so we're just gonna try and cover what we've been able to track down. It's yeah. you know so rock and roll the definition. It's based. I mean, it's very popular music. It originated and evolved in the United States during the late '40s and early '50s. And it comes from or is inspired by a lot of different other types of genres. For example, gospel, jump blues, jazz, boogie-woogie, rhythm and blues, and country music. So a lot of influences.
1: Lots. And the phrase rocking and rolling originally described the movement of a ship in the ocean, but by the early 20th century was used to describe the spiritual fervor of black church rituals, and as a sexual analogy.
2: Yeah, it was an old old wooden ship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there are various gospel, blues, and swing recordings used to phrase, uh, use the phrase before it became used more frequently, but still intermittently in the 1940s on recordings and reviews of what became known as rhythm and blues music aimed at a black audience. There's a lot of influence there for sure. Mm -hmm. And then
1: while elements of what became rock and roll can be heard in blues records from the 1920s and in country records from the 1930s, the genre did not acquire its name until 1954.
2: Right. In 1951, Cleveland, Ohio disc jockey Alan Freed began playing this music style while popularizing the phrase to describe it. So we can say, I mean, there's a big reason why Cleveland is like considered the,
1: well, that's where the rock and roll
2: hall of fame is. That's what I was going to say. Like that's, (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty much where it's from.
1: And in the earliest rock and roll styles, either the piano or saxophone was typically the lead instrument, but these instruments were generally replaced or supplemented by the guitar. Obviously in the middle of the fifties.
2: Right. The beat is essentially a dance rhythm with an accentuated backbeat, which is almost always provided by a snare drum.
1: Classic rock and roll is usually played with one or two electric guitars, one lead and one rhythm, a double bass, a string bass, or after the mid-1950s, the electric bass guitar and the drum kit.
2: Beyond just a musical style rock and roll as depicted in movies, in fan magazines and on television, it has influenced lifestyles, fashion attitudes, and language. So yeah, it's it's a it's definitely a genre of music, but man, it, it transcends all things. It, do we have it, do we have yeah, we, do we have I'm Josh Beck? I'm back. <laughs> He's back. Well good. Well so Josh is gonna start here talking to us about the history of rock and roll. Yes?
0: Yeah. Go so on. the origins of rock and roll have been fiercely debated by commentators. And historians of music. So Nerd is a New Cool is going to clear this up for you.
1: Once and for all.
0: Yes. The immediate roots of rock and roll lay in the rhythm and blues, then called race music, and country music of the 1940s and 50s. Particularly significant influences were jazz, blues, gospel, country, and folk music.
1: In the early 1930s, jazz and particularly swing, both in urban-based dance bands and blues influence country swing like Jimmy Rogers, Moon Melikon, and similar and other similar singers were among the first to present African American sounds for a predominantly white audience. One noteworthy example of a jazz song with rock and roll elements is Big Joe Turner, <clears throat> with pianist Pete Johnson's 1939 single Roll' Pete, which is regarded as an important precursor of rock and roll.
2: Right. And so kind of. Speaking about the time period, during and immediately after World War II, with shortages of fuel and limitations on audiences and available personnel, large jazz bands were less economical and tended to be replaced by smaller combos using guitars, bass, and drums. And Chuck Berry, who we'll talk about more in a little bit, developed his brand of rock and roll by transposing the familiar two-note lead line of jump blues pipe piano directly to the electric guitar, creating what is instantly recognizable as rock guitar.
0: So he introduced an aggressive guitar sound to rock and roll and established the electric guitar as its centerpiece, adapting his rock band instrumentation from the basic blues band instrumentation of a lead guitar, second chord instrument, and bass and drums. Country Boogie and Chicago Electric Blues supplied many of the elements that would be seen as characteristic of rock and roll.
1: Rock and roll arrived at a time of considerable technological change soon after the development of the electric electric guitar, amplifier, and microphone, and the 45 RPM record. Because the development of rock and roll was an evolutionary process, no single record can be identified as unambiguously the first rock and roll record. But there are contenders for what could be considered the first rock and roll record. Here are some of them. So we have Sister Rosetta Tharp's Strange Things Happen Every Day in 1944, and That's All Right by Arthur Crudup in
2: 1946. We've got The Fat Man by Fats Domino, which came out in 1949. Uh, Also in 1949, we had Goree Carter's Rock a While and Jimmy Preston's Rock the Joint. And then we had Rocket 88 by Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats as well as Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, which Tonight. came out.
0: Sorry, that song's going to be stuck in my head all day now.
1: Hey, everybody knows that song.
2: Yeah, yeah. For sure. yeah. so that was in 1954 <laughs> or 55, around there.
0: Other artists with early rock and roll hits included Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, <laughs> Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Gene Vincent. Doo-wop was one of the most popular forms of 1950s rhythm and blues, often compared with rock and roll, with an emphasis on multi-part vocal harmonies and meaningless backing lyrics, from which the genre later gained its name, which were usually supported with light instrumentation.
1: Its origins were in African-American vocal groups of the 30s and 40s, such as the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers, who had enjoyed considerable commercial success with arrangements based on close harmonies. The use of distortion was made popular by electric blues guitarists, such as Joe Hill Lewis. Guitar Slim, Willie Johnson of Howlin' Wolf's Band, and Pat Hare. The latter two also made use of distorted power
2: chords in the early 1950s. And as we mentioned earlier, rock and roll wasn't just about the music. It was also about basically how it's presented on stage. And none did that more impactfully to change things than Little Richard, who kind of came around in the 40s, but also really impacted his stage persona in 1955, between 1955 and 1959. He released classic tracks like Tutti Frutti. That one's going to be stuck in my head now. Long long Tail Sally and Good Golly Miss Molly. He had very, very just crazy, sexy lyrics and and just a a persona he put on on stage that, uh, that people were just obsessed with. In Chuck
0: Berry's 1955 classic Maybelline, in particular features a distorted electric guitar solo with warm overtones created by his small valve amplifier. Also in 1955, Bo Diddley introduced the Bo Diddley beat and a unique electric guitar style influenced by African and Afro-Cuban music and in turn influencing many later artists.
1: Rockabilly, usually, but not exclusively. Refers to the type of rock and roll music which was played and recorded in the mid 1950s, primarily by white singers such as Elvis Presley, who, yeah, probably heard of him, Who's Carl that? Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis, who drew mainly on country roots of the music. And by the end of the 1950s, Presley had been inducted into the army, Holly had died in a plane crash, and Little Richard had converted to gospel.
2: A lot of people consider that time period the rock and roll's golden era. The golden age. Yep. The golden era, the golden <laughs> age. Uh, and at this point, we started getting into kind of more of a sophisticated approach. We had what was considered an orchestrated wall of sound, which was kind of started by Phil Spector. Um, and, and we also had, of course, the Motown records that they put. That was called the Hit Factory. Tons of singles. And uh, let's not forget about the Beach Boys. By the mid-1960s, the sophisticated, uh, sophistication allowed the music greater freedom than ever before. And this is kind of when we started uh, getting different styles that all just became known simply as rock.
0: And then there's a phenomenon in the early 1960s known as the British Invasion. One of the bigger groups to come out of the British Invasion were from London, England, and they called themselves the Rolling Stones. This Never heard of them. Instru- yeah, this band was instrumental in making blues a major part of rock and roll music.
1: <laughs> While the Beatles were looked at as more of a pop sensation, the Rolling Stones were seen as a grittier rock group. Another I'm extremely
0: fan of the Rolling Stones as opposed to the Beatles. Personally, oh. wait, wait, you were always you like the Rolling Stones more than the Beatles? <clears throat> yes,
2: that's fair. Mm-hmm. It's just different to, I mean yeah they're both rock but it's different styles
1: of music mm-hmm. like the Stones and the Beatles are not they're they're
2: apples and oranges Here's what I would say as far as the way I, I listen to them I like the I like more of the rock and roll songs by by this, I'm not explaining this very well I like the the hard hitting songs by Rolling Stones better than like the the more guitar based songs with the Beatles with the Beatles I like more of the um, like the Hey Jude type songs, mm-hmm. you know? I'm, I'm blanking on like the kind of songs, like the ballads. I like the ballads better in from the Beatles than I do from Rolling Stones. What a terrible way to describe that, but I think you kind of get get the gist.
1: Well, I think that makes sense, though. Yeah. Well, and I mean that's Rolling Stones. Like they just lock Keith Richards into a room and he'd come up with a riff
2: and then they'd make a song around it.
1: Yeah, but that's just kind of what they did.
2: Like I can com- <laughs> I compare like Sympathy <laughs> for the Devil one of the best songs ever, that kind of song coming out of the Rolling Stones. That was what I was into, but then I love the let it be type songs out of the Beatles.
1: Yep. Yeah. I gotcha.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Another extremely important band that must be mentioned when discussing the British invasion of the 1960s is the Yardbirds. This group went through a great deal of lineup changes through, and we'll talk about that a little bit later too throughout the years, and these lineups res- resulted in the band having three iconic guitar legends playing with them, and all three of them at the same time, at one point in time, Eric mm-hmm. Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. That's insane. Hopefully you've heard of all three of them.
2: That's pretty <laughs> insane that those three were all in one one group together at the same time. Speaking of an insane group that really, we already kind of mentioned them earlier, uh, the Beach Boys, huge in California and worldwide as well. They had a really unique approach to rock and roll, and their music didn't really follow the familiar structure, which was, you know, verse, chorus, verse-type situation. They really were all about, harm, and also all about um, harmonizing layers of vocals. Of course, we have to mention Bob Dylan when talking about rock and roll. He was a very influential American musician, had a lot of influence from, he was influenced by folk rock and blues.
0: Psychedelic rock. Declined in popularity after the deaths of Jimi Hendrix, Janice Joplin, and Jim Morrison of the Doors, the self-imposed seclusion of Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd, and the breakup of the Beatles in nineteen seventy. Arena Rock began to grow in popularity through rock acts such as Boston, Kansas, Sticks, Heart, and The Who.
2: I don't ever really think of I mean it definitely is psychedelic rock, but for some reason I don't think of that when I think of Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd. Mm. janice joplin and, and the doors obviously but it totally is and I, and I actually like i think i like that version of rock better than arena it, rock it
1: is uh especially like i mean if you've listened to pink Floyd's earlier stuff like before gilmore joined the band some of it was pretty out there yeah um, and yeah and it's where we get into it a little bit like i almost think of them more as like a progressive rock instead of like a psychedelic rock but i agree with you on Jimi hendrix like Guy could just play guitar. Mm -hmm. His songs weren't like kind of out there or anything like that. He just he could just play. Yeah. In the 1970s, however, saw the emergence of hard rock as one of the most prominent subgenres of rock and roll music. During the first half of the decade, British acts such as Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Queen, Nazareth, and Black Sabbath were at the height of their international fame, particularly in the United States. Blues rock still remained popular, with Eric Clapton, ZZ Top, and George Thorogood and the Destroyers seeing the greatest success.
2: We had a few other types of rock. There are just so many types of rock. This is just—it's hard to to uh, to just narrow it down into one type of rock. We had what's called progressive rock, and this was basically uh, people or bands like Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart. Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Boston, Foreigner, Journey. We already kind of mentioned Kansas and Sticks as well. Radiohead. Uh, Radiohead, right. That's not really Later, right.
1: but still a progressive rock band. Kind it. of the so same. I would, I would think they are.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is to pigeonhole these bands into one type of rock is pretty unfair to do that. I mean, like we mentioned the Beatles, the Beatles kind of went from pop rock to traditional rock and roll to psychedelic rock. Right. And these bands grow and they change. And so speaking about some bands that had a really unique sound, we've got new wave rock, which is in the late seventies bands, like talking heads who I just loved the cars. Fantastic. The knack, the B 52s Devo. Oh, Devo. Whip it. (laughs) Don't forget. It's not too late to whip it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah and then the mid-1970s saw the rise of punk music or proto-punk garage band roots in the 1960s and early 1970s the ramones patty smith and blondie were some of the earliest american punk rock acts to make it big in both the united kingdom and the united states
1: and some of the more notable pop slash soft rock groups during the 70s were the carpenters the Jackson Five, Seals and Croft, the Doobie Brothers, which is kind of Southern rock too, uh, Hall and Oates, Brad, Captain and Tennille, Tony Orlando and Dawn, Bay City Rollers, and the Osmonds. Influences of this music led, led to heavy metal, alternative, grunge, R&B, rap, pop, and country music as we know it. And now you can start. You started seeing it a couple of years ago. Pop rock.
2: Yeah, it's now another genre. Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of it's a constantly evolving totally is so all right so we're going to kind of jump into a few specific influential people or bands and so again we already mentioned a lot about chuck berry but i think we'd be remiss not to go into a little more in depth about this person
0: shameless plug alert as well to learn we've already kind of hit chuck berry in our st louis celebrities episode from last summer so go back and listen to that as well and then listen to this again
2: Yeah, man, Chuck Berry was super influential, and uh, we're pretty lucky to be living in the same city he's from. So he was born October 18th in 1926. He died just recently, March 18th in 2017. Like we said, he was born in St. Louis, and he died in Wentzville. He was nicknamed the father of rock and roll. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to
0: know. And some of his most popular songs... Maybelline in 1955, Rollover Beethoven in 1956, Rock and Roll Music in 57, and Johnny B. Good in 1958.
2: I thought his cousin Marvin Berry wrote Johnny B. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I I, you got to reference Back to the
1: Future, I to the future when I talk about Chuck Berry. Yeah. Especially Johnny B. Good.
2: Yeah. No, it's your cousin Marvin. Marvin Berry? Michael J. Fox's version. <laughs>
1: So, as, as we mentioned, he was born in St. Louis. He was the fourth. He was the last child. He was the baby, the fourth of four. He grew up in North, in North St. Louis um, in a neighborhood called Ville. Ville? Ville? Villa he, Villa. The vill. The Ville. And he <laughs> gave his first performance in 1941
2: while still a student at Sumner High School. This guy had a lot of trouble with the law. He, while he was a student there in 1944, he was actually arrested for armed robbery after robbing three shops in Kansas City and stealing a car at gunpoint with some friends. Apparently, he, uh, his car broke down, according to story, and he flagged down a passing car and stole it at gunpoint with a non-functional pistol.
0: Yeah, so because of this, he was convicted and sent to the intermediate reformatory for young men at Algoa near Jefferson City Missouri, where he formed a singing quartet and did some boxing. The singing group became competent enough that the authorities allowed it to perform outside the detention facility. Barry was released from the reformatory on his twenty-first birthday in 1947.
1: And on October 28, 1948, he married the Meta Toddy Suggs, who gave Booth, who gave Booth, who gave birth to Darlin' Ingrid Barry on October 3, 1950. Barry supported his family by taking various jobs in St. Louis, working briefly as a factory worker at two automobile assembly plants and as a janitor in an apartment building where he and his wife lived. He was doing well enough by 1950 to buy a small three-room brick cottage with a bath on Whittier Street, which is now listed as the Chuck Berry House on the National Registry of Historic Places.
2: Yeah, you can drive by it, and which it is kind of sad, though, because, you know, with a lot of artists in, in different areas of the country, when you drive by, like, their house, like, think about Graceland, right? It's this huge thing, tour site, and it's just sad because of where it's located, because of so many other issues in our community. It's just, there's a little sign, and you almost, like, drive right by it, and it's just not up, it just, it should, it should be a bigger deal in it than it where is. Where is it? It's in downtown St. Louis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, So, talk about the beginning of his career. In 1955, he traveled to Chicago where he met Muddy Waters. I think we've heard of that person before. He's often cited as the father of modern Chicago blues. And this person, Muddy Waters, said you should contact Leonard Chess of Chess Records. And basically, uh, Barry thought his blues blues music would interest Chess, but Chess was a larger fan of Barry's take on "Ida Red," which. We'll learn about here in a second. It's so important.
0: Mm -hmm. On May 21st, 1955, he recorded an adaptation of the song Ida Red" under the title Maybelline. With Johnny Johnson on the piano, Jerome Green from Bo Diddley's band and the Maracas, sorry, Jasper Thomas on the drums, and Willie Dixon on the bass, Maybelline sold over a million copies, reaching number one on Billboard magazine's Rhythm and Blues chart for number five on its bestsellers and stores chart for September 10th, 1955.
1: And Barry was quoted to say it came out at the right time when Afro-American music was spilling over into mainstream pop. And at the end of June 1956, his song Roll Over Beethoven reached 29 on the Billboard Top 100, and Barry toured as one of the top acts of 1956.
2: Yeah, speaking of tours, in 1957, he took part in Alan Freed's biggest show of stars for 1957, toured around the U.S. with other people like the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly. He started knocking out some even more hits from 57 to 59. These actually were on the U.S. Top 10, School Days, Rock and Roll Music, Sweet Little 16,
0: and again, Johnny Be Good." And by the end of the 50s, he was a high-profile established star with several hit records and film appearances and a lucrative touring career. He'd also, and this is big and important, opened a racially integrated St. Louis nightclub, Barry's Club Bandstand, and invested in real estate.
1: And then some more things happened that weren't (laughs) so good. Uh, In December 1959, he was arrested under the Mann Act, which outlawed prostitution after allegations that he had sexual intercourse with a 14-year-old Apache waitress waitress Janice Escalante. He was convicted, fined $5,000, and sentenced to five years in prison. After he appealed the decision, Barry served one and a half years in prison from February
2: 62 to October 63. After he got out of prison, it actually kind of worked out a little bit for him because at the time he was able to basically cover some really popular songs, so he actually reworked some of them, such as Beach Boys' 1963 hit, Surfing USA, which was which used the melody of Barry's Sweet Little Sixteen.
0: So at the height of his career, 1964 and 1965, he released eight singles, including three that were commercially successful, reaching the top 20 of the Billboard 100. No Particular Place to Go, which is a reworking of school days concerning the introduction of seatbelts in cars, you Can Never Tell, You Never Can Tell, and The Rocking Nadine.
1: You Never Can Tell. Pulp Fiction. Never,
0: never Can
2: Tell, yep.
1: Mm-hmm. There were no hit singles from the 1970 album Back Home, but in 1972, Chess released a live recording of My Dingaling, a a novelty song which he had recorded in, a, in different versions as My Tambourine on his 1968 LP From St. Louis to Frisco. A live recording of Reeling and Rocking, issued as a follow-up single in the same year,
2: was his last top 40 hit in both the U.S. and the U.K. I should also mention that I think I misspoke earlier. Bands were actually remaking and covering his songs, not the other way around. So bands like the Rolling Stones, Beach Boys, and the Beatles were actually covering his songs, which kept him kind of popular Mm -hmm. in the, uh, you know, in the time, in the 60s, et cetera. All right, so now we hit the seventies, and he's really starting to have some some unfortunate more unfortunate things happening to him he his live performances started becoming very erratic. He started having issues with his backup bands he had really out of tune performances and his his the younger fans really started uh not liking his reputation. Mm-hmm.
0: Among the many band leaders who performed a backup role with Barry in the 70s were Bruce Springsteen and Steve Miller when each of them were starting his career. They said Barry did not give the band a set list and expected the musicians to follow his lead after each guitar intro. Barry did not speak to the band after the show. <laughs> Barry's touring style, traveling the oldies circuit in the 70s, often being paid in cash by local promoters, added ammunition to the Internal Revenue Service's accusations that Barry had evaded paying income taxes.
1: And facing criminal sanction for the third time, Barry pleaded guilty to evading nearly $110,000 in federal income tax owed on his 1973 earnings. Newspapers in 1979 put his 1973 joint income with his wife as three hundred seventy four and basically $375,000. He was sentenced to four months in prison and a 1,000 hours of community service performing benefit concerts in 1979. And in the late 80s, Barry sought the Southern Air. He bought, sorry, bought the Southern Air, a restaurant in Wentzville, Missouri. So he was inside. This is the
2: third time he went to some sort of correctional facility. Unfortunately, it still gets worse. In 1987, he was accused of assaulting a woman in New York.
0: Yeah, and then in 1990, he was sued by several women who claimed that he had installed a video camera in the bathroom. He claimed he had installed the camera to catch a worker who was suspected of stealing from the restaurant. Although his guilt was never proven in court, he opted for a class action settlement. And then one of his biographers, Bruce Pegg, estimated that with 59 women, it cost Barry over $1.2 million, plus legal fees.
1: And also, reportedly, a police raid on his house found intimate videotapes of women, one of whom was apparently a minor. They also There was also another raid in which they found 62 grams of marijuana. Felony, drug, and child abuse charges were filed as the child abuse charges were dropped. Barry agreed to plead guilty to misdemeanor possession of marijuana. He was given a six-month suspended jail sentence, placed on two years unsupervised probation, and was ordered to donate
2: $5,000 to a local hospital. So again, Barry died on April 9th, 2017. His funeral was held at the pageant, which is in St. Louis. One of Barry's attorneys estimated that his estate was still worth $50 million, including $17 million in music rights. Barry's music publishing accounted for $13 of the estate's value.
0: So let's get into some nerd facts. His childhood was characterized by racial segregation. He'd never seen a white person until he was three years old. And unlike (laughs) most artists, he penned his own autobiography called Chuck Barry, The Autobiography. It turns out he was a master of words with and without his guitars. Here's one of his more memorable passages. Try as I did, day after day, to cling to righteousness, I was washed out in suds of sinful surroundings.
1: Barry's first major hit, Maybelline, is also considered the first true rock and roll song. It features a rhythm and blues beat, country guitar licks, and a Chicago blues flavor. It earned Barry his first record deal and climbed to number one on the R&B charts. And then My Dingling was Barry's only number one hit single. And while there's a handful of other songs his fans would deem more worthy of the top spot, Barry always stood by his naughty sing along,
2: claiming he was simply giving the audience what they wanted. At the request of Jimmy Carter, Barry actually performed at the White House on June 1st, 1979. As we mentioned earlier, he's been a huge, huge influence on a lot of other artists. In fact, a lot of other artists actually covered his music. So, for example, Elvis covered Memphis, Tennessee too much monkey business, Johnny B good and Promised land.
0: Jimmy Hendrix covered Johnny B good as well. The Beatles covered rock and roll music, roll over beethoven in Memphis, Tennessee. The Rolling Stones have covered come on and let it rock, and the Beach Boys as mentioned previously used the melody from sweet little 16 for surfing USA.
1: And Carl Perkins also covered roll over beethoven and Johnny B good. ELO, the Electric Light Orchestra covered roll over beethoven. Status Quo has covered You Never Can Tell, and Carol, and ACDC covered School Days, as well as
2: Brian Adams, Keith Richards, and Dave Edmonds covered "Run Rudolph Run. There's so many. Faces covered Memphis, Tennessee. David Bowie, slightly altered around and around. The Yardbirds covered Guitar Boogie as Jeff's Boogie, so kind of called it something different. The Kings have covered Too Much Monkey Business, and Buddy Holly covered brown-eyed, handsome man.
0: On July 29th, 2011, Barry was honored in dedication of an eight-foot in-motion Chuck Berry statue in the Del Mar Loop in St. Louis, right across from Blueberry Hill. Barry said, it's glorious. I do appreciate it to the highest. No doubt about it. That sort of honor is seldom given out, but I don't deserve it. And John Lennon said, if you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry.
1: And some other artists have also had some thoughts. On Chuck Berry as well. Ted Nugent once said, if you don't know every Chuck Berry lick, you can't play rock guitar. Bob Dylan called Berry the Shakespeare of rock and roll. And Bruce Springsteen actually tweeted that Chuck Berry was the greatest rock practitioner, guitarist, and the greatest pure rock and roll writer who ever lived.
2: He won a a lot of awards, but a few of them were the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1984 and the Kennedy Center Honors in 2000 and he's ranked seventh on Time Magazine's 2019 list of the 10 best electric guitar players of all time. So I think that we've talked a lot about Chuck Berry and why he's important. For me, it's, it's, just, it's kind of a sad tale because of how influential he is to rock and roll and the genre and a lot of other artists. He just had a lot of personal demons too that we kind of talked about. Um, so it's just an interesting story. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, I mean, and he was, he was the trailblazer. There's a lot of, and I think we saw it in the the history that we, that we talked about beforehand. It's all, it's like rock and roll, just kind of, and music in general, just kind of builds off itself. And he was kind of the foundation of every, like one of the, you know, found, founding pieces of how everything is built on top of that, where you, you go to him, and then you go to Elvis, and then you go to the British Invasion, and then you go to these different types, but it all started somewhere,
0: and mm-hmm.
1: right? you could argue that it started with him. I think if you're
0: going to talk about rock and roll, you got to
2: talk about Chuck Berry.
0: Yeah, true. And I also think, to segue, you have to talk about Queen, who was my choice for the band. In intro, they were founded in London in 1970. Their classic lineup was Freddie Mercury. Freddie Wow. Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Who was lead Frederick. vocals and piano. Brian I like that. I like that name, Frederick. Frederick. Brian May was guitar and vocals, Roger Taylor was drums, and John Deacon was on the bass. Funny, my first really memory of Queen, I have two <laughs> memories of a Queen song. First one is in Wayne's World. Where they? Obviously. Are, yeah, and then Mighty Ducks. Those are my two, like, first recollections of Queen. So...
2: Uh, I so I'm going to I'm going to say yes with Wayne's World but I'm actually going to say the same song with Queen but I'm going to actually say Mighty Ducks. Wait, no, not Mighty Ducks. Uh Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. That's where I'm going to put it in there. Lambert, nothing nothing for at the end of at the end of Revenge of the Nerds, the first one. There that's the song I that's playing. Don't, I don't and I don't. Well, okay, I got nothing. <laughs> we are the I don't remember where
1: Okay, I figured it was We Are the Champions, but I don't remember it being Glade and Mighty Ducks either. I guess i got to rewatch that movie.
0: Oh, yeah, it's all over Mighty Ducks <laughs> in the end.
1: Anywho. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, some of the more popular songs and albums that they had were, so one of them was A Day at the Races, and that's where Somebody to Love was on, and then News of the World, and that's had, what we've already mentioned, We Will Rock You, slash We Are the Champions. And then Bohemian Rhapsody came out
2: on night at the opera. There are a lot of other great songs. We can't possibly cover all of them, but You're my yeah, you're my that, best friend. Yeah, it's not even your best. That's one of my favorite songs by them actually. We've also got another Fat, one
1: by Saddust. Fat Bottom Girls. That's probably my favorite.
2: Fat Bottom Girls is <laughs> huge. Don't stop me now. That's great. Under Pressure featuring David Bowie is another fantastic one. The list goes on. Sorry if we didn't talk about your favorite song, but they're a yeah. lot.
0: So some history and bio, they recorded 15 albums and interesting. May and Taylor were in a band called smile. Freddie Mercury joined them in 1970 and suggested the name queen. And they were a British rock band.
1: And um, probably one of the most significant moments. And it was, Depicted in the film Bohemian Rhapsody was their Live Aid performance on July 13th, 1985. It had the largest TV audience of 1.9 billion people where they had a 20-minute set and they just kind of did all, crammed as much of their, much of their greatest hits in, into that 20 minutes. And in 2005, an industry poll ranked it as the greatest rock performance of all time.
2: I think that really – so my dad talks about this. He, was, he, he ran a kind of a, a food service for a concert venue in St. Louis, and he talks a lot about how Queen was, was popular, but they weren't this mega group that I think we've kind of made them out to be. And the, the live aid performance, that was near the end of their career mm-hmm. because after that, he, when he was already kind of sick but got really sick and passed away, unfortunately – but I think that, like, looking back on it, people are like, "Oh, Queen's one of the biggest bands of all time," and they are now, but they weren't necessarily at the time, which is just so interesting. It's it's almost like something becomes a big of like pop culture, like you think about comic books and, and things like that, but all of a sudden, or even like movies that like uh, cult classics type situation. They now, were again, the
1: terrible thing, when they first came out. Yeah, and
2: and these guys weren't terrible; they were very popular, but they weren't. Well, yeah. like, they weren't near the stage of Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin at the time, or even Huey Lewis in the, in the news, right? So, anyway, just wanted to throw the little tidbit in there. Uh, Freddie Mercury, again, I kind of mentioned, he, he did pass away, unfortunately. He constantly denied having HIV-AIDS, but in fact he did, and he died of it in November of 1991. Every band member except Freddie Mercury actually had a postgraduate
0: degree. So some smart dudes. Yeah. And Freddie Mercury's original name was Farrakh Becerra. He was from an Indian family and another Freddie Mercury fact, he designed the queen emblem himself. And in the early days of Queen's show, this is the infamous, you know, the broken microphone stand, his microphone stand broke, but instead of finding a new stand, he held the stub of the stand containing the microphone and kept singing. This gave him a new idea and he soon started to use his new prop in various shows while roaming around the stage. Since then, many other singers have incorporated the accidental invention of Mercury into their shows.
1: And quite contrary to the lyrics of the song Bicycle Race, Freddie Mercury didn't like riding bikes. <laughs> in the same song, there is a line, I don't like Star Wars. Reality was quite the opposite, as guitarist Brian May pointed out later, that Freddie Mercury really liked Star Wars.
2: You guys... so there's not a lot of real life going on in those lyrics. Do you, I mean, you know that song, Bicycle Race? Oh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I like to ride my by, bicycle. Yeah,
2: he just repeats that like a lot. I'm like, do you ride by by. It's the <laughs> weirdest song ever, but it was super popular. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of
1: a strange song. In yeah. 1999, England honored the Queen by releasing a postage stamp commemorating Fre- Freddie Mercury, but this stamp created unpleasantness among the royal family as the photo chosen had Roger Taylor in the background. According to the British tradition, the only living people who c- only... Living people who can appear on stamps are members of the Royal British Family.
2: Speaking of, yeah, it is weird. (laughs) Speaking of uh, royalty, as far as music is concerned, Michael Jackson actually persuaded the band to release another one bites the dust as a single, something that hadn't originally something they hadn't originally planned on doing. And as time has gone by, we've already mentioned the live aid performance, but it has just grown in popularity and also importance Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl actually said, every band should study Queen at Live Aid. If you, really like, if you really feel like that barrier is gone, you become Freddie Mercury. I consider him
0: the greatest frontman of all time. Yeah, we, we mentioned David Bowie and Under Pressure earlier. They actually, Queen didn't get along with David Bowie when they collaborated on the song. <laughs> Brian May has said, I think it was the only time in Queen history where I've bowed out. And then we've already mentioned this as well. A movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, starring Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury, was released in 2018.
2: Rami Malek. Yeah, sorry. Malek. Sorry, we just watched Night at the Museum. So, you know, we're studying up on all things Rami Malek okay. and Mr. Robot, too. We're watching that as well. Yeah, there you go.
1: And the loosely connected duo of albums, A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races, were both named after silent movies by the Marx Brothers. The follow up, News of the World. Was named after Rupert Murdoch's ill-fated newspaper, magazine, whatever. And then, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the the official International Queen Fans Club is the
2: longest-running rock fan club in the world.
1: I would not have guessed that.
2: No, no, I, I would. I, if you gave me a hundred guesses, I'm not sure I would have come up yeah. with that. Maybe, maybe hundred guesses, but not, not, not anytime. I would it's have not picked 10. the Beatles. Yeah. Right. Chuck Berry. Uh, so back in 2006, <laughs> Time Asia, Time Asia, Time Asia, Asia. In Asia.
0: like Magazine Time. In Asia. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: They named Freddie Mercury as one of the most influential Asian hero- heroes of the past 60 years. Now it makes sense. Mercury had a long term relationship with Mary Austin. However, their relationship ended when he began having an affair with a male who worked at Electra Records. Mercury and Austin remain close friends, though. He once said of her, All my lovers asked me why they couldn't replace Mary, but it's simply impossible. The only friend I've got is Mary, and I don't want anybody else. And that's really portrayed pretty well, I think, in the Bohemian Rhapsody uh, uh, movie.
0: Mm -hmm. So, group discussion, we've kind of really hit it a lot, but why does it matter? I think just their live aid performance kind of was a it's called the greatest live performance of all time and they're just a cool group and still around today
2: well and talk about some of their ballads some of their songs just keep coming back up in pop culture and i think it's because of the lyrics because of the tunes but man how many movies and television shows have they licensed those songs in that we remember it just keeps happening which is just a testament to how influential many of those songs are
1: and, and I'm fairly certain that, that that we are the champions is played after anybody wins a championship in any league ever. <laughs> yeah, ever. Like, yeah, Pro, sports, amateur beer league. It doesn't like that's the song that gets played.
2: Yeah. Or ro- even <laughs> even road trips like with 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 Bohemian Rhapsody, and and mm-hmm. the, obviously Wayne's World helped <laughs> propel that song into a whole nother stratosphere. But man.
1: Well, and honestly, it kind of reintroduced Queen to a whole other, like, to an entirely new, different generation, really. Is Me, what that I was did. one of the new generation,
0: you know, yeah. I, I was yeah. too.
1: I didn't, I mean, I kind of knew who they were, but, like, that was that was yeah. pretty much it. And then you just kind of expand their catalog. You just kind of, just kind of yeah.
2: Yep, 100%. I don't
1: know. 100%. Oh, yeah. I think the more you, and you do I guess, and the movie kind of helped out with it. I didn't realize. You, you never realize how many good songs they have. They have a lot of really good songs.
2: I know it's, it's it's it is. It's one of those bands where you keep listening. They're like Steve Miller Band, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know that song too. And they sing that also, and I knew that, yep. but I just forgot how many amazing mm-hmm. songs they have. It's such a crazy library of music. So Queen, Queen, you're Queen. the king. You're the king. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. Speaking of kings of rock, Lambert. Kings of
1: Rock. Um, this was an obvious choice for me um i i have a tattoo um my dogs was named after them as well um and it is led zeppelin i will kind of preface everything knowing that i didn't go very deep at all into any of the information on led zeppelin um i figure one there's a oh, there's a ton we could do a series on led zeppelin if we wanted to we could do an individual episode so i didn't go into deep depth you know a deep dive into this really at all, and just just kind of wanted to just you know, bring them up and talk about them. So Led Zeppelin, if you didn't know, are from England, and they were formed in London in 1968, and they consisted of Robert Plant on vocals, Jimmy Page on guitar, John Paul Jones on everything, but primarily bass and keyboard, but he played almost every instrument you could possibly
2: think of, and then John Bonham on drums. Led Zeppelin had eight studio albums, they had 10 compilation items, albums, four live albums, and three video albums. There are honestly so many songs that we could name similar to Queen. Let's, let's just name a few that they made. Since I've Been Loving You, Bring It On Home, How Many More Times, The Lemon Song, one of my favorites,
0: in My Time of Dying, Black Dog, Custard Pie, Hey, Hey, What Can I Do, No Quarter, When the Levee Breaks.
1: And then Days and Confused, Thank You, The Battle of Evermore, Black Country Woman. And I have to mention Tangerine because that is Jordan's favorite song. And I actually just came up with that list off the top of my head. And I could have kept going, but I had to well, stop. Well, John, I noticed
0: that Stairway to Heaven is not on there.
1: Stairway to Heaven is not on that is list. Is that
0: the and bad I- song you were talking about? It is not a bad
1: song, and I have I love against that song. that song. And I and it's and it's a great song. But I will say this for all the world to hear: if you claim that you are a Led Zeppelin fan, but "Stairway to Heaven" is your favorite song, you are not a Led Zeppelin fan. <laughs> and
2: that's all I'm going to say. I, I would agree, and I don't mean to be <laughs> holier than thou, but that I mean it's a good song. It's a it's a, it's an iconic song. Of course. It's a
1: great song, and it's very important.
2: And I don't take anything away from it, but it's not my favorite. I would 1,000% agree with that statement. The first song they actually played together was Train Kept a-Rollin' in a Room Below a Record Store in London.
0: They first toured as the new Yardbirds in 1968 because Paige's previous band, the Yardbirds, had several shows already lined up when they disbanded. Which
1: we did mention earlier as one of the bands because they had kind of a rotating group of people and then, yeah, they ended up just breaking up. And then their actual first performance was at the Gladzak Teens Club in Gladzak, Denmark, as the new Yardbirds on September 7th, 1968. John
2: Bonham, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to say, and then
2: there's a lot of information that we could get into, but we just kind of skip all that. Right. So because (laughs) we're going to go back to Led Zeppelin and, and talk about and do a whole episode on them in the future because they are, there's just so many stories, alleged stories as well to tell about them. So unfortunately John Bonham died on September 25th, 1980 of his asphyxiation from his own
0: vomit. And then Led Zeppelin then disbanded on December 4th, 1980.
1: So, and there's stories about um, Bonham's death that, that, that I was reading up on and he apparently for breakfast had four quadruple vodkas and a ham roll.
2: That's insane.
1: <laughs> and then he, he kept like, and he was driving to the studio to rehearse and then he kept drinking and playing and drinking and drinking. And then they, they put him to bed, they put him on his side, but then he ended up throwing up and choking on his own vomit and, and passing away. Mm. Very unfortunate. And the the band, there were there were some rumors about who would replace him, but then they they made the decision that they could that the chemistry was so tight between the four of them that they could not go on without it, and so they disbanded.
2: I mean, some of the stories of some of these these rock and roll artists, especially in the '60s, '70s, and even '80s, the stuff that they did and st- are still alive. Like how how are first of all was- how are the How's Keith Richards still alive? I was going to say, like any member <laughs> of the Rolling Stones, the rest of the members of Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and we could continue on. It's pretty yeah. amazing.
1: And again, since we're going to do a deep dive, I didn't want to go into it a little bit, but I will. The, the, the nerd fact that I did want to share with everybody is how they got their name. In 1966, two years before they formed, Keith Moon, who was the drummer for The Who, and John Entwistle, the bassist for The Who, recorded an instrumental called Beck's Bolero with Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and Jeff Beck. While Page and Beck were still with the Yardbirds. Track came out very well, so well that they tossed around the idea of, of forming a new band. Moon allegedly said that that band would go over like a lead balloon. When Jimmy Page formed this new band, he remembered the joke and then called the band Led Zeppelin. There is some controversy where... John Entwistle, the bassist, said that he said it and not Keith Moon. But most people believe that Keith Moon actually coined the phrase Led Zeppelin and then well the lead balloon and then Jimmy Page just kind of dropped the A, and that's where the name came from.
2: Yeah. Pretty cool. So why (laughs) why is this group such an influential band? I think that we've kind of mentioned already, but wow, the amount of music that they produced, and honestly, like should have would have produced a lot more music had they Mm -hmm. not disbanded so early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And And these songs, these is another one of those groups where you just hear these songs and you're like, wow, it's another Led Zeppelin song that I didn't realize, or I just completely forgot about. That's just how, how, how many amazing pieces of music they've created. So yeah. Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin.
1: Check them out. If you Mm -hmm. haven't.
2: Yeah. Crawl out from under your, yeah. Crawl out from
1: under the rock (laughs) you've been living under. And then check out Led's up when check you out those
2: check out those lead balloons. They're pretty good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So uh, that's it. Let's get into some nerd outreach. and well, Thank yous.
2: I actually wrote down a different thank you because I wanted to remember to shout out uh, a former student of mine and friend Sean Binkley for actually turning me on to watching the skit called old Greg, which is back to one of the hosts from the great British baking show. Speaking of that, say, did yeah. you
0: guys mention, when I, my internet was out, did you mention my um, what I just started out on? No, we we'll, let you,
2: we'll let you save that for the next episode. All
0: right. <laughs> uh, obviously, my thank you goes out to my wife and daughter for letting me do this.
1: And I'm going to thank my dogs for not really barking that much during <laughs> this, which is really surprising considering they're right there and staring out the window the entire time. So, hey, thanks, guys. Thanks, dogs. <laughs> So for any ideas for future shows, please send them via email to nerdisthenewcoolpodcast at gmail.com, or you can use the hashtag Nerd is the New cool podcast on any of the socials.
2: Yeah, if you want to contact us, you can, all, in a different way, of course, on the old socials, like follow us on Facebook, Instagram, also on Twitter. Just search Nerd is the New cool podcast, or some version of that, you'll find us.
0: And where to hear us, just go to Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, or SoundCloud and search Nerd is the New Cool Podcast.
1: The next episode, we're continuing our journey on TV and we're going to go into the 90s. Lots of good television to choose from in the 90s to discuss.
2: Yeah, we've, we've only got a, three, a few more decades left, the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2000 teens. I think these it.
0: are going to be the three hardest decades to pick. Well, I,
1: they're so fresh in our memory that it's going to yeah. be hard to choose one show to really kind of dive into it
2: yeah well look forward to that on the next episode so thanks everybody for listening till next Jay. time thanks everyone all right bye-bye Bye.